this is the last slide we were on last week, and then we, I'll give you a review of that, and we'll go to the next slide. We talked about the keys of the kingdom. I'm interpreting this passage to say the keys are the terms for entrance, and that Peter and the other apostles who wrote scripture gave us the terms for entrance into the kingdom, and the terms are the gospel itself, the narrow gate, faith in the finished work of Jesus, the Messiah, and so forth. And then binding and loosing are declaring what's forbidden and permitted, okay, according to the terms of the new covenant. And that binding and loosing is done by God's ordained apostles, is definitive, it prescribes and proscribes the valid teachings of the church. Now, I know for many of you, this is not, at this point in your lives, revolutionary, but I remember well when I was thinking binding and loosing was about demons and Satan. And that consumed an awful lot of our time. Someone mentioned to me that with all the binding of Satan that goes on, you'd think by now he'd be bound, wouldn't you? But uh, he's still loose. And he's still deceiving people, still tempting. And so that's not what it's about. Now, what we're going to do now, by God's grace, is to go forward and show how, for example, Paul. Now here, this is addressed to Peter. Remember last week I pointed out, Peter says, you are the Christ. Christ says, you are Peter. So there's a rhetorical thing going on between the two of them. And now we're going to look at Paul and see that he also is an apostle appointed by Christ himself. And as an apostle, his written teachings that we find in the Bible are scripture and are binding on our minds, hearts, and consciences. So we see Peter, to whom Jesus addressed Binding and Loosing, says this about Paul and also other scripture that would be binding on the church. It's Verse 2 says that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Now, it's not just Peter. This is Peter writing. But see, in that first verse there, you have the authority of the church. Okay? And we're to remember what God said. Now, we're going to see a little bit later, again in Acts 2.42, that the apostles' teaching is what they were devoted to. And so under the new covenant, the apostles' teaching is binding on all Christians. And where does it come from? The holy prophets, the, the Lord and Savior spoken by the apostles. So it isn't just the red letters. Have you ever heard of somebody calling themselves a red letter Christian? And if you, yeah, I've run into that. I think I mentioned it in my book about emergent, but... They don't even like all the red letters. The red letters minus the ones about hell. They don't like those. 
And so we want to establish not just the red letters, but what's spoken by the apostles. Okay. And then I, I go down where Paul is mentioned in verse 15 and 16. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you as also in all his letters, which the untaught and unstable distort as they also do the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. Now we have a little window of insight here opened up for us through Peter to see that not only is Paul's teaching written in letters, but it has the status of scripture, even in Peter's day, because it talks about the rest of the scriptures. So even while the apostles were still alive on the earth, there were the untaught and unstable who distorted the teachings of Christ and his apostles. Now, why is this important? Because it establishes for us means of grace. When they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, this is talking about a specific body of information that's given to us bindingly and authoritatively and is found in Scripture. And you would say, is there any practical application? Yeah, there's a whole lifetime of practical application. How do I know what I ought to do? How do I know what I ought to avoid? How do I know that the book Jesus Calling is not from God? Are you thinking about that one? It's not the teachings of Christ and his apostles that were given in Scripture. It's another Jesus, a spirit Jesus, who is not the one in 1 John who could be touched, seen, and heard, and was so by the apostles. So we don't need to listen to it. In fact, we ought not to. Now, it also says in Jude, Jude chapter 1, there's only one chapter in Jude, in verse 17, but you, beloved, ought to remember, there's that word, the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. There again is an affirmation, Jude 1.17, of what's authoritative for the Christian. Now, I, me- I think I mentioned last week, when I first studied this in the mid-80s, trying to, at the time, escape from spiritual warfare doctrines, and I did research with what tools I had available, mainly the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. This was revolutionary, and I mentioned I even had a death threat over it. And now, when, how can I say this? Maybe you haven't experienced this. I have. When you are fully committed to something that's not biblical, and you're fully convinced in your mind that it is, and you invest your whole life in it, it consumes you, and it harms you. It always harms you. The truth sets us free. Lies put us in bondage. I embraced that warfare worldview for so long. But does the Lord use it? Yes. Yes. 
I get more emails about that than any other topic. I just got one this last week. And it's an opportunity to preach the gospel. I've had more opportunities for the gospel from people, some of whom are not Christians. They find my article on Warfare Worldview, and they ask about it. If I wanted to just talk on the phone, I could do it all day because they want to call, but I try to avoid that usually. You just go on email. But I was able to do so uh, recently, point people to the gospel, point people. See, they think that if they have temptations and problems in their lives, it's because of demons, and they're looking for an exorcist. And so this is important. Let's go to the next passage. Now, this one I'm not going to get as deeply into as I normally would because I'm going to preach on it. Eric is sick, so I ended up with Sunday school and church. This is part of my PowerPoint for the sermon, but I'll give you a little preview, okay? And I'm here maybe wanting, in Sunday school, to emphasize a different aspect of this, although the whole verse is necessary. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, I'm interested in the first thing I haven't read there, just as you've always obeyed. Now, this is Paul. And we saw that Peter told us that Paul's teachings are scripture and they're authoritative. So it wasn't just Peter with the power to bind. Here, Paul writing as an apostle to a church that he loved very dearly. Paul was in prison. They've obeyed him. Paul is the authoritative apostle who's to be obeyed as God speaking to the church. That may not seem like a big deal, but it really is. We're establishing whose authority rules over the church, Christ and his apostles just as you have always obeyed. Now, Paul's not there. He's in prison, but his writings serve as authoritative and binding teaching from God. Now, I'm going to preach about this work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but let me give you a little preview. A little, here's a little literary device of a foreshadowing. I didn't highlight it, but see that little phrase, fear and trembling? If you look that up in the Old Testament, you'll find that it's a reference to holy awe in the presence of God himself. Okay, you'll see that in Psalms, you'll see it in Leviticus, you see it in a number of places, and it's mentioned also in the book of Hebrews. Now, what does that mean? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Well, the key point that Paul's making is that we have God in our midst. He's a holy God. And that should invoke in us a sense of awe about God and his word. Holy reverence. The fear of God. And so having salvation, which is secure in Christ, 
doesn't mean we're not in awe of God. And it doesn't mean we don't care what God said. We have to obey the words of the apostles because we have a holy God who's in our midst, who indwells us. And it should give a sense of awe and it should inform our worship and our practice. Is that amazing? Yeah, you can look through concordance and find the, the trembling or what have you. So I'll talk about that more in the sermon. But um, this is an important passage, but I got to warn you, every form of strange inner healing or spiritual warfare teaching that I've heard has used this verse to try to justify it. And it's really not Paul's point whatsoever, but I'll talk about that in my sermon. But I want to go forward here because I don't want to, I got to have something to preach on. Okay, I only got so many slides, but we'll be back on this verse, I promise. Now, let's look at Romans 14. Now, here's, remember, uh, now, back up, Matthew 16. We're talking about binding and loosing. Now, we're mostly concerned with binding, and we'll see that in the New Testament that's prevalent. But it doesn't mean there, are, there isn't any loosing. Okay, in Mark 7, when Jesus declared all foods clean, he was loosing. When Peter saw the, the vision of the sheet coming down with all the different animals, he was being convinced he ought to loose. In other words, allow Gentiles to hear the gospel and to come into fellowship, God-fearing Gentiles. And then the application of that happened right away in Acts chapter 10. So here, it, it accounts for the possibility that within the same church or any church, you have people with, with different ideas on certain things. Okay? Now let me read it. Romans 14, 2 through 4. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is to not to judge the one who eats. For God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his master he stands or falls and he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. Inevitably, as people are redeemed, regenerated, and brought into the family of God, they're going to have different ideas about things that are not really bound. And food laws here is given as an illustration, or food that we eat or don't eat. And because all foods are declared clean, there's no food law under the new covenant other than the ones that were invoked in Acts 15, and that's a topic for another time, but there weren't very many, but it was there to, so the Gentiles and Jews could fellowship together, which would have been hard if the Gentiles had to eat blood. Okay, so that's, that's how I understand that. Okay, so here it says that since foods are loosed, 
we might look down our nose at a fellow Christian and say, well, you're not as enlightened as I am about food. You eat fill in the blanks. Bacon? Bacon? (laughs) (laughs) We know Brian does. (laughs) Now, there is a really walking out there on the edge of liberty, right? Bacon. (laughs) And (laughs) and so it is. But see, we don't want to divide the church over what's loosed, but we don't want to compromise about what's bound. Now, to show this terminology, binding and loosing, uh, oftentimes in the New Testament, the two are used together in Matthew 16. Deo, luo, bind and loose, to bind, to loose. Often in the New Testament, just the deo is used, bind, but then it talks about not bound. And it has the same idea as loose. So not bound equals loosed. Bound would be bound. Now, for example, this is 1 Corinthians 7.39. 1 Corinthians 7.39. I'll read it to you. I don't have a slide for it. It says, 1 Corinthians 7.39, A wife is bound as long as her husband lives. But if her husband is dead, she's free. Now here the term free is used as the opposite of bound. To be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So here's Paul doing Binding and loosing. And if your husband is still alive, you're bound to him or wife. If they die, you're free to be married only in the Lord. Does that make sense? So here you have an application of binding and loosing. Does this easily cover everything that could ever come up? No, it doesn't easily cover everything. And we have to resist the urge to create a a Talmud like they had for the Jews because it fills three or four libraries. Uh, Well, maybe this, maybe not that. But the basic issues are laid out in the New Covenant about what's bound and what's loosed. And we are bound to the moral law of God. But we're loosed from things like the food laws. Now, it says in Romans 7, 6, I have some more verses here if you want to jot them down. Again, I have them on my notes here. Romans 7, 6. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound. And I want here to show you the term bound. Okay? We were bound, now released. So that we serve in newness of spirit, not the oldness of the letter. Letter Again, just to understand the issue. Bound, released. Bound, loosed. That's Matthew 16, 18 and 19. So, the binding and loosing. Now, this one, this is added. It may not be on your outline. I've got to talk about this one. I mentioned it to Brian on the way over. This is Romans 14, 17 and 18. I thought about this one because I was looking at it for my sermon here or my Bible class. This is revolutionary. This may shock you, but I'm actually trying to practice it. 
No, I just say that. Of course, we should be trying to practice everything. This is very helpful. Romans 14, 17, and 18. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now look at this, this next verse. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by man. Now here it talks about how we can serve the Lord. And I've known about this and taught on this for 30, 40 years. But the last few weeks, I've been thinking, why am I upset? Why don't I have the peace of God ruling in my heart? Where is the joy of the Holy Spirit? Shouldn't that be true about me and in me? And some of the things that get me riled up really shouldn't. Now, I'm not saying that we become totally stoic because stoicism is not a biblical idea. But let's say you're in traffic and it's just it's just aggravating. It, it's not crazy to think at that point, where is the righteousness, peace, and joy of the Holy Spirit? What is that spirit? Excuse me. Where is the righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit? How is that the kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom of God is the reign of God. Christ is the king, right? And if Christ is reigning over me and in me, then the down payment, it's going to be even greater in heaven, but the down payment should be righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what it looks like. And it actually says if you serve God that way, you'll be acceptable to God and approved by men. That would be good, wouldn't it? I'm not going to harm anybody by walking in righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, it takes some practice. It needs obedience. It's really hard. We need to remind, but the word of God has an influence. For example, we bought a little tomato plant. There's a bushy one and it has a cage in it. It was at Sam's Club. And it's, it's got all these tomatoes on. And as soon as one gets close to ripe, the squirrel takes it. <laughs> Even on Sunday, the gall of those squirrels. I got up this morning, there's a tomato chomped by the squirrel. So I lamented to Brian. And he had a story about how some other critter ate all these beans. Now, I can not be happy about that, and I can try to find a way to thwart the squirrel. Ever, did anybody here ever try to thwart a squirrel? <laughs> Who wins? Squirrel. <laughs> They're unbelievable. Anyhow, I, but I really thought about this. Rather than being, that could have ruined my whole day, but instead I'm thinking what the squirrel does to the tomato is not worth losing the joy of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Brian. Or Dana. 
It reminds me of when Jonah was lamenting about the worm eating the plant that was shading him. That's a good story. Yeah, and Jonah, oh, the plant. He was upset because God saved the Ninevites. That he didn't want them to be saved, but he was concerned about a plant. And it was an object lesson, right? Yes. Brian. Now, when you get mad about a squirrel taking your tomato, you're there by yourself. There's not other people around you. Uh, a failing for me, and, and maybe other people have this as well, is if you're the eye of non-believers is on us. So when you get upset or react in a certain way, that's a bad witness right there. Uh, for the Lord. Yeah, it, that's very true. Well, and it also makes a difference. Okay, I saw the thing this morning. I told Brian about it. But the people here came to hear the word of God, not to hear me get out of source because a squirrel ate the tomato. Right? You didn't come. You want me to have the peace of God and enjoy the Holy Spirit in my heart so I can teach you the way I ought to. So it has a practical implication. It really does. And so I think that it helps us with uh, one another's, the bear one another's burdens. It helps us in our dealings in the world in general. The king is reigning in my life. He gives me righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And if I serve him that way, that's acceptable to God. And it's a blessing by the, to the people around me. That's my sharing with you the project I've been working on in my own life. I want God to do that. That doesn't mean I won't try to thwart the squirrel, but I'm not making any great predictions. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know yet how that... Brian said he'd try to help. Now, what about when there is sin that is not acknowledged to be that. Now, here's where binding comes in. 2 Corinthians 12, 21. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you, and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they've practiced. So Paul's binding, saying this is sin, impurity, immorality, and sensuality. You should repent of it. And I don't want to be there to have to deal with this in person because I'll mourn. This is not what the church is supposed to look like. So you, do you see the binding? When it came to different Foods that people may or may not eat, we, we are loosed. When it comes to our moral behavior, we're bound. Does God change us? Yes. Does he change us from the inside out? Yes. He cleanses our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He gives us desires that we otherwise wouldn't have. Is, does that mean we can't sin? Oh, yes, we can. But we need to be grieved about it and serve God with fear and trembling and quickly repent. May God help us. So there's binding. 
Now let's go back to Acts 2.42. That's our overriding thematic verse on means of grace. Now, I'm saying that the teachings like the ones we've seen so far, so far this morning are means of grace, and that us hearing about, for example, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, hearing about that has a sanctifying effect on us. Why? Because it's God's word. And uh, it says in Hebrews that God's word is quicker than any two-edged sword. It pierces right into our heart. The word of God cleanses us. The word of God informs our mind. The word of God gives us guidance. The word of God changes us. And so the, it's the teaching of the apostles. Now remember, who does the binding and loosing? Christ and his apostles. Whose teaching were they devoted to? The apostles' teaching. There we have it. And to fellowship and to breaking of bread and to prayer. So God is gracious. God uses means. God reveals means. And by his means, we can come to him in faith. And he's at work changing us. The Holy Spirit is at work. I was talking to... uh, Eric and Mike and Mark, we had a little supper. That was a great time of fellowship, talking about sanctification and things like that. And I mentioned a word, and then I looked it up later to make sure I wasn't going off the beam. I I mentioned the word synergy. Okay, now it's used in modern business parlance, but it's actually a biblical word in the Greek. You, You can find it used in the Greek New Testament. Literally, synergy. And here's the valid meaning of it. It, In business, it means everybody's pulling together like all the horses are hitched up to the same wagon and they're all going in one direction. But here is a better understanding of it from a biblical perspective. As we're all devoted to the apostles' teaching, think about what's going on. How is it that we even care about the apostles' teaching. We are born from above by the Holy Spirit. We're born again. What is unique about the teaching of the Bible, particularly here, Christ and his apostles? It's inspired by the Holy Spirit, is it not? It's God-breathed. So we have the scriptures inspired by the Holy Spirit, We have the Christian born of the Holy Spirit, and we have fellowship with others in the Holy Spirit. And so the word of God is a means of grace because it's how the Spirit is working in all of us. the, The power is in the word. We are indwelt by the Spirit. So when we study the word and believe it, there's a working together power, synergy, this of the Holy Spirit. Now, elders and pastors need to know this. Some brothers came down a little over a year ago from Canada wanting to start a new church, and they asked if I'd spend at least a supper with them, which I did. I was pretty sick back then, but we were, I was able to do it. 
and I was telling him about this. If you go to the church girl seminar, you won't hear this. You may hear synergy, but it'll be more like Covey, Seven Habits of Highly Influential People. I had to take that in seminary. That's not going to help you because that's not the Holy Spirit work, and that's human beings' work, and they don't need God in the Spirit for that kind of synergy. Pastors and elders need to know that whatever the sociologists say, whatever the psychologists say, whatever the church growth experts say, they are wrong if they're not recognizing this truth. The Holy Spirit gave us the scripture. The Holy Spirit indwells Christians. When Christians hear, believe, and obey the word of God, they're working together with the Spirit, and the Spirit is working in them, and that creates a church. The Holy Spirit falls upon us, and we have a church. And you need to know that, okay? If you know that, then when you have a pulpit, you can't imagine doing anything but teaching the Word of God forthrightly, without excuse, and applying it. Why? Because we know that's what God's going to use. He just does. It may seem like somebody else is getting better results but from their plan, but it can't be. Devoting there is the same word used elsewhere in the New Testament for being devoted to prayer, and that's mentioned here as well. So there, what we're bound to, we're devoted to, and we're excited to be so. I think it just happens. You know, I had some uh, forays away from the truth, thinking I was finding deeper spirituality through inner healing and deliverance and some of the stuff I got into. But I remember as a new Christian, my favorite teacher at Bible college was Reverend Wesley Smith. And he knew the Hebrew background of scriptures. He got into the languages He understood how the biblical authors told their story authoritatively. And he had a course on the Gospel of John. And I remember at 22 years old, getting there early for that class, sitting in the front row. And and this was before cassettes. Okay, I know, I'm old, right? (laughs) Real to real. And I had a little reel-to-reel with a little bitty reel here and a little reel here. And I'd set that up with my little crude mic and record Reverend Smith's lectures on John. And they were so delighted my soul. I didn't want to miss a word and I wanted to listen to it more than once. I was 22 and I wasn't getting a whole lot of encouragement from other sources about what I'm talking about here today. But it was still true. Why? Because I really was born of God. And there was something about those lectures on the Gospel of John that just tied it all together, put it in its context, applied it to my life. I couldn't get enough of it. I think you're like that too. That's the work of God. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, to my shame... I went off, and I didn't listen to Reverend Smith's warnings, and I went off into some other things that 
sounded spiritual to me, but they weren't of the same essence and nature. But seven or eight years later, when the other stuff hit the rocks, I went back to what I had learned from Reverend Smith, and I started teaching Scripture. Now, I have a quote here from John MacArthur from one of his books that's my favorite. It's been retitled since then. And so it says here, they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Now I have the new King James. Here's something that's been a poison pill for evangelicalism throughout the 20th century. It's the lie that doctrine's going to kill you. Okay, they make a, a false application of 2 Corinthians 3. The spirit gives life, the letter kills. Have you heard that? The letter being Bible teaching. Bible teaching will kill you, but going to the meeting of the apostles and prophets, that'll give you life. And that's how I heard it. Okay, they're the hyped up preacher, that'll give you life. The Bible will kill you. Now, and then in this anti-scholastic evangelical milieu, doctrine became a dirty word. We don't go to church to hear doctrine. Tell us what God's doing. Well, I will tell you what God's doing. He's giving you doctrine. (laughs) Okay. Now, the New King James translates didache, which is, can be the word teaching or doctrine, translates it doctrine. Now, let me talk about devotions, because I already mentioned Jesus calling. But here, a quote from John MacArthur that I underlined two or three times and put a little mark in the margin. I've been through my, this book four times, and I kind of wore it out. Faith Works, by the way, is republished now as the gospel according to the apostles. But it's the same book. MacArthur says, quote, If you're inclined to think that a doctrinal book is the antithesis of a devotional book, I hope to change your mind. Devotion to the apostles' doctrine is a good thing. But see, the bane of 20th century evangelicalism has been that when you go to the bookstore and buy a devotional book, you get some of the worst doctrine in the whole, you can find anywhere. Jesus calling. Or there was one when I was a, young Christian called Come Away My Beloved. It was even more seductive. And it was a guy speaking in the name of God, allegorizing the Song of Solomon and making a sensual Christianity. All right? And so you have this and this and this devotional. And then when you go to some dry, dusty class, you might get doctrine. But when we're devoted, then we have false teaching. No, they don't call it that. I agree with MacArthur. Sound doctrine is something to be devoted to, and it does work, work practically, and it does change us. I mentioned that Romans fourteen seventeen: the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's been life-changing for me. But that's doctrine. What's the rule of the king look like? That's doctrine. God will use it because it's the truth. So there is what MacArthur has to say, and I think rightly so. 
Now, let's talk about the vine and the branches and bearing fruit. John 15, 2 and 3. This helps us understand God's work in our lives. John 15, 2 and 3. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that I may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Now, as we saw in Acts 2.42, we're devoted to the apostles' doctrine and devotion is a good thing. God wants us to be devoted. Here, we're clean, and the, clean, and the word for clean is katharos, the Greek word for which in, in the English we have catharsis, but we're clean. Why? Because of the word that he's spoken. See, the word of Christ and his apostles has a cleansing effect in us. Oh, yes. Does your mind, I, you don't have to answer this individually, but to contemplate it. As you go about life in the world, does your mind tend to get full of garbage? Really bad stuff. Here it says that the word which Christ speaks cleanses us from the inside out. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord. We have every reason to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now, some might say, well, the apostles' teaching is only valid if you have a specific version of it that covers whatever my particular problem is today. That's not true. That's a good thing to do. And the more we learn the word, the more we can find the verse that applies to our situation. But the word has a cleansing effect in and of its own self because it's powerful, quicker and quick, life-giving and sharper than any two-edged sword. The word in itself is effectual and powerful, even if it's on some topic that we might not be able to connect directly to the current issue. But it's his word. And I think particularly we should think about redemption and atonement, repentance, faith towards God, obedience to the word of God, the change that God does in us. And I think hearing about Christ and his great redemption is a cleansing thing. It won't hurt us. Do you think you can get too much of Christ? No, not at all. So God prunes us and cleanses us. Pruning process may very well be part of providence, as we saw earlier in Hebrews, about the discipline of the Lord. The cleansing is the process of God's word. Let's just reinforce this. We were in John 15. Now we're going to go to John 17. And see the same idea. John 17, 17 to 19. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also send them into the world. 
For these, for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves may also be sanctified in truth. So the truth sanctifies us, sets us apart for God, makes us holy, renews our mind, empowers us to live godly lives, empowers us to distinguish truth from error, righteousness from evil, gives us what we need to be blameless, blameless in this unholy and wicked world we live in, to be saints, to be sanctified ones. And God's using his word. Oh, thank you, Lord. (laughs) My mind goes back to the early 70s when I was converted and how I just couldn't wait to hear it, to hear the word taught and the effect that it had on me. See, God changes our desires drastically. And if you have to just go to extraordinary ends to try to get somebody to to even go to church, there's a problem because we should be hungry for the word. So I was uh, converted on July 18th, 1971. And Diane and her family, which were the ones witnessing to me, went to a little Pentecostal church across the city park from their home. And that church was populated mostly with elderly people because they hadn't had a new convert in over 30 years, almost 40. And so when we were baptized, there was the first baptism they'd had in all of that time, because, partly because they became cloistered and uh, they, there were certain things about them that scared everybody else away that really weren't necessary things. But anyhow... Different, that's a different topic. Nobody had to get out a whip to get me into that church. I couldn't wait to be there. And the music was quaint, but we sing some of it now. Like there's power in the blood, and when the roll's called up yonder, they had that. They had a piano and an organ, and now my mind goes back, what kind of organ was that? Was it a Hammond B3? I I don't remember what it was. But they had a Hammond, probably a Hammond, but they had an organ. And everybody else was old, and I was a young man. But I was glad to be with those who had the truth. So here it says, the truth of God sanctifies us. So therefore, we have no reason to be teaching anything else. Now, maybe somebody else should talk besides me. Brian, could you look up this passage and read it? Ephesians five twenty five through twenty seven. We want to, we want to look at this word sanctify and then the word cleansed. We've seen those two words in John fifteen and John seventeen. Ephesians five twenty five through twenty seven. Go ahead, Brian. Husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Wow. Now, there's two parallel teachings here, how husbands love their wives, 
and how Christ loves the church. But I want to focus, being how it's our topic right now, sanctification, verse 26, that he might sanctify her. Now, how did Christ give himself for us? Did he not lay down his life on the cross to bring atonement, redemption, forgiveness of sins? And so he sanctifies, his point is to sanctify her, the church, having cleansed. Now, the cleanse here is, in the tense here, is something that's happened. And how did it happen? By washing of water with the word. Now, I believe this is the word of God that sanctifies us. If you're Lutheran, of course, you'll find baptism there. Okay, nobody thought that was funny. (laughs) That's okay. And uh, I'm not belittling baptism in one one bit, but I think here is talking about what happens through the word of God. Baptism will certainly signify a work of God through his word and through Christ. So there's sanctification and cleansing. And the point of this that's going on now progressively in us and for us is that in the end, he would present to himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Now, right now, that's not true, is it? There are plenty of spots and wrinkles. But the goal is ultimately to be fully holy and blameless. Isn't that right? So if you have a literal wedding, a lot of times brides go to great lengths to, to be presentable. You know, with the, the bridal gown and um, so on and so forth. Sometimes it gets really carried away sometimes as far as the expenses of it and what have you. But God is going to great lengths to sanctify us and to cleanse us. And I believe he'll complete the process. But what we need to learn is what are the means that he uses. Here it says the washing of water with the word. We're clean through the word that he's spoken to us. And so wouldn't it be absurd to have Christians gathered and then to teach them anything besides the word? Wouldn't it be absurd to preach anything besides the word? Do you think it would be better suited if we just had human wisdom or sociology? Or do we believe the word of God will cleanse us and sanctify us? I believe that it will. Now, do we ever have setbacks? Oh, yes. Sometimes setbacks so serious that we despair that we're even Christian. I've had that. How do we know we really are? Because God doesn't leave us in the muck and he pulls us out and he changes us and he sets us back on our feet and he washes all the muck and mire off of us and the word becomes even more precious to us and Christian fellowship becomes precious to us as does prayer. Well, there it is. I had it in my notes, so I thought I didn't have it here. There it is. I'll leave this up. Is there any more discussion on God cleansing us 
by the water of the word. Well, maybe I can ask this. Do you ever hear some people, for example, listen to John MacArthur or some of their favorite preachers on the Internet? What happens? Do you ever have those teachings come back to your mind? I do. Mike. Okay, go ahead. We got a minute. I didn't mean to cut you off. I was intending to do this at the beginning, but I got got way late. I I found out I already went over to the slide that I'm just coming to here. Well, God is gracious and he is good, that's for sure. And um, he does use means. And I... uh, um, the, the the Holy Spirit is working, and uh, we have a, a working example of that. Uh, those of you who were here last week um, were aware of a situation that occurred where a brother addressed uh, um, someone not in accordance with uh, Matthew 18. And we as elders just want to let you know that we were concerned about that. And um, the good news is that um, the best of all possible results uh, has occurred in that uh, uh, there, the person uh, has, is contrite, um, he's repented, um, and the parties have reconciled. So, I mean, praise God. That is just awesome. That's just wonderful. And even more than that, it appears that, you know, a, a new friendship has been formed. So, you know... That's just awesome. But we wanted to let you know that uh, um, we as elders and leadership were, were conservative. That we wanted to make sure that we address it and let you know that uh, um, we need to, uh, you know, adhere to the uh, scriptural uh, uh, ways of going about things. And so we hope we can, uh, you know, that you've been assured that, uh, um, you know, we are conservative that type of thing. So yeah. I would uh, just like to, I, I, I can... I was going to pray. Why don't you, you close want? our Sunday yeah. school class with prayer? I will, I will pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, help us to love one another as you have loved us. We thank you that you use means to burn off the dross of our lives, to prune and to cleanse us as, as individuals and as a church. We thank you for your grace and your mercy, your compassion. We ask that you forgive us all of our trespasses. In the precious name of your son, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. God bless you. I'll see you in the other auditorium.